Hi, I'm Mark A. Bell, family physician and professor at the University of Georgia and editor-in-chief of Essential Evidence Plus. I'm John Hickner, family physician and editor-in-chief of the Journal of Family Practice. And I'm Henry Barry, a family physician and one of the co-founders of InfoPoems. Welcome to another special edition of Primary Care Update, where we're going to focus exclusively on COVID-19. This is part of our plan to do more frequent podcasts in addition to our usual every other week uh, general primary care podcast. Lots to cover this month, the largest trial to date of hydroxychloroquine, the first serosurvey results, doing telehealth, masks, viral shedding, lots more. So I'm going to start off. Uh, both of the studies I'm going to talk about have been uh, published on preprint servers. Those are not peer-reviewed yet. They've been submitted to uh, journals, but they're going through that peer review process. Given the, the urgency of some of this information, we're sharing it with you. But, you know, apply grains of salt liberally to, to information that hasn't been peer reviewed yet. First studies by Tang, uh, Kao, CAO, and Han, hydroxychloroquine in patients with COVID-19, an open label randomized controlled trial. So this was a Chinese study. They randomized 150 patients to hydroxychloroquine plus usual care versus usual care alone. All but two of the patients had mild or moderate disease. So I think that's important. And the mean time from symptom onset to randomization was 16 days, which seems like a fairly long time. So pretty far into the course of the illness. They found no difference in the rate of conversion to non-detectable SARS-CoV-2 between groups uh, within 28 days, uh, 85% versus 81%. There was also no difference in symptom alleviation at 20 days, the number of days till symptom alleviation. Uh, they did lots and lots and lots of comparisons and lots of post hoc analyses and data dredging. And they found a couple of benefits like uh, a separation of the uh, recovery curve uh, during the second week, but not the first or the third week. Um, and so I think that's totally speculative, any kind of benefit they saw. I think they were really, really, really trying hard to find some modicum of benefit. Uh, but the primary outcomes were not different. Mortality isn't reported, so I'm not sure if that means there were no deaths out of these 150, which seems unusual, although they were mild to moderate cases, uh, and adverse events were more common in the hydroxychloroquine group. Comments, guys? It was interesting to read this manuscript because, as you mentioned, they try to put a positive spin on this study. I'm hoping that that positive spin comes out in the editing process because it's uh, very speculative. Yeah, John, you know, you you are editor of the Journal of Family Practice. I was at one time, so we both have the experience of seeing, you know, original manuscripts coming in from researchers. And, you know, there's even if there's no financial conflict of interest, there's an intellectual bias. They put a lot of effort into doing a study. They desperately want to find something positive. And yes, um, you know, you see that coming through very clearly. And I had exactly the same thought. I, I hope that the editors, uh, you know, crack down, limit the post hoc comparisons and the data dredging. Henry? Yeah, we want it to be true, but it's only true on a Tuesday after the full first full moon of the uh, of of the year. So, uh, you know, I th we can be a little facetious about some of this, but the reality is that this was a group of individuals who were severely ill to begin with, and they really started well into the course of illness. So, it shouldn't be a surprise that administering any therapy, unless it's absolutely heroic, um, is unlikely to have a benefit. Yeah. So this is one of, uh, there have been several other smaller negative trials of hydroxychloroquine. I think there is a large uh, trial. They're trying to recruit 1,500 patients, um, NIH-funded trial here in the States. 
I, I read an interview with one of the researchers who was complaining that all of the president's uh, pronouncements about how wonderful hydroxychloroquine is are making it hard to recruit people into a randomized trial, uh, unfortunately, but hopefully they can get that done. The next one is the, <clears throat> the first seroprevalence study. Uh, it was done, it's uh, Bendavid, B-E-N-D-A, or Ben David, I guess, Mullaney um, and Sood, COVID-19 antibody seroprevalence in Santa Clara County, California. Uh, again, another preprint server study. And this was a large community sero survey in Santa Clara County, California. Think sort of the South Bay area, San Jose, uh, around Stanford. It was uh, done by Stanford researchers. And, um, uh, you know, large population. The county has a population of 1.9 million. At the time of the study, which was done in early April, uh, they had 956 confirmed cases of COVID-19. And they also had some of the earliest reported cases in the country, the first one diagnosed January 31st, 2020. So this is a good area to do it because they had an early outbreak and it's since uh, flattened out in that county. After adjusting for the age district, so they on April 3rd and 4th, they obtained serum from 3,330 adults and children. They just did community-wide, ask people to come in, and they had to adjust for the age distribution because those coming in tended to be younger. Um, but after they adjusted for age and sex distribution in the population, and they also tried to account for <clears throat> rates of true positives and true negatives, they estimate a prevalence of 2.5% to 4% uh, having antibodies to SARS-CoV-2. So given the population of the county, that's somewhere between 50 and 80,000 total infections, which is a lot higher than the number reported on April 1st of 956. So it starts to give us some sense of uh, in counties where they've had a longer time of exposure and have flattened that curve, and there are very few new cases being reported, they had um, about a 3% uh, overall prevalence. John? Yes, I scratched my head when I read this initially because that's a, a lot of infections compared to the confirmed cases. And I, I think I finally figured this out because of limited testing, I'll bet there were way more than 956 symptomatic cases. My guess is there were maybe five, even 10,000 symptomatic cases. These were people that were very mildly ill and guidelines at the time were telling us if you're mildly ill, just stay home and quarantine yourself. So I think this does not give us a percent of patients who carry the virus asymptomatically. It's going to be other seroprevalence studies that are going to have to help us with that. Yeah. the um, uh, you know, You've got to think about this virus in terms of people who get infected, but many of whom never develop symptoms, but can still spread it to others. Those who have a mild to moderate illness, and many of those, most of those uh, never get tested and still are not getting tested. Some are beginning to get tested now. And then those who, you know, unfortunately have a more severe illness end up in the hospital. Probably the hospitalization and, and death rates are going to be most reliable in terms of, you know, that proportion of the infected population. Henry? Yeah. So this issue of selective testing is going, uh, uh, selective antigen testing, which is what we have been doing, is going to haunt us. And uh, it, it, it certainly was the same issue during the SARS and MERS um, epidemics that it wasn't until we had reliable antibody testing that we were able to get a sense as to the true infection rate. 
This represented roughly a 50-fold increase over the number of reported cases, confirmed cases. Even if that's off by an order of magnitude, using data that we have today, that there were roughly 755,000 Americans with confirmed COVID-19, that represents probably a true infection rate if, uh, if they're off by just an order of magnitude of about 3.5 million. And with the 41,000 um, deaths that have been reported roughly that get that's about a one percent infection fatality ratio which is rate rate which is what um, the Imperial College has reported as their their um, overall estimate so so there's an awful lot that's out there and it's not necessarily all asymptomatic individuals it's often the individuals who don't have access to care and those who have very mild disease yeah and I think as we roll these tests out it's really important. Henry, you and I just submitted something to American Family Physician where we calculated the false positive rates. And it's those false positives that are particularly worrisome in this setting where people are going to be using this test to reassure someone, yes, you've been infected. Congratulations. (laughs) You survived. You can go back to doing whatever you want. And if that is wrong, if it's a false positive for immunity, then that person is still, of course, completely non-immune and at risk. And we found if you have a 1% prevalence, then you're going to have uh, you know very high 80% false positive rate. If you have 10% prevalence, it's around 28%. And that's using the specificity that's published by the manufacturer of the Celex test. So we need very, very specific tests, 99 or more percent specific in order to have adequate I think, confidence in the results. And so I'm worried that a lot of these tests being rolled out have inadequate specificity. They may cross-react with other coronaviruses and be giving false reassurance to people who actually are not immune. So we're going to have to really be very thoughtful about how we interpret those tests. Next is Henry. It's your turn to update us. Yeah. So about week and a half ago, the National Academies published a series of um, articles. These are attempts to look at what's the bulk of the literature reporting as opposed to individual studies. And so one of the ones that caught my eye had to do with whether or not heat or humidity had any impact at all on the SARS-CoV-2, the actual virus's survival. And so what they found was a a, a number of studies, but the data were conflicting, were generally poor quality. They found multiple confounders, as well as insufficient time since the start of the pandemic to make much of a judgment. What was really interesting was that just last week, the Wall Street Journal published an article uh, with ecologic data showing associations with heat and humidity in COVID-19. Now, the, the Wall Street Journal article does a reasonable job of pointing out that there were all kinds of issues in terms of variations in how often testing was performed, the size of the population, population density. Uh, and, and that article also provided um, data on the virus actually in labs, in virology labs, uh, based on how the samples were actually stored. You know, For me, since we're seeing COVID-19 on both sides of the equator and we're seeing rising incidences in tropical and temperate climates, I don't know that we should necessarily assume that there's likely to be much seasonality to this bug. Yeah, I mean, we do have seasonal coronaviruses, right? And they're seasonal. But generally, when you have a new pathogen in a susceptible 
population of hosts like us, it doesn't necessarily follow. It just jumps from host to host to host. And we saw that with H1N1. Uh, we've seen it with other pandemics and other uh, pathogens. And I think it may eventually follow a seasonal pattern if it does become endemic, uh, which means that it's basically becomes a seasonal uh, you know, plague upon us, uh, kind of like uh, the flu, then it may very well follow a seasonal pattern. But I don't think we should expect that at all um, you know, uh, until uh, we have a little more experience with it. John. Let's move on. Okay. Sounds good. Um, I probably stole your comment. <laughs> it's like, no problem. I was going to say that. The, the three it. of us have played together so much that we often think the same thoughts. <laughs> Indeed. I just got to go first this time. Okay. Henry, yeah, I got one more. So, uh, and this isn't necessarily research, it's practical tools. So, you know, last time I talked about empiricism and rationalism and, um, and skepticism. This is a, a really a focus on pragmatism. And so the, the quarantine measures have really required us to become really creative in using telehealth in ways that we've not used before. And many people haven't really even been trained on how to do this. So a couple of resources that I want to bring to your attention. First is the BMJ, and the second is from the CDC. So uh, towards the end of March, uh, Trish Greenhalge, uh, who is a long time, great thinker, great, great writer. Uh, she and her colleagues published a very nice overview on how um, telehealth services ought to occur, including some of the necessary infrastructures that need to be in place, how to make decisions around whether you want to do just an audio call versus a video call. If you go to the BMJ's website and just go to their link on um, COVID-19, it's for the last couple of weeks, it's been the very first article that uh, that shows up on their list. Uh, the second from the CDC is they actually have a very nice script. It's very explicit with branching um, points that have each lead to special care recommendations. These would be the kinds of things that relatively untrained individuals, maybe a few rehearsals might be able to implement. So for example, if a patient reports symptoms of hypoxia or hypotension, not only does it recommend that you direct the person to the emergency department, but also to make sure that the patient knows to inform people that they've been exposed to possible COVID-19. And oh, by the way, maybe we also need to make sure that we arrange some sort of follow-up and tracking for these individuals. So a couple of good resources for you to consider. John, have you had a chance to take a look at those? I haven't looked at those, but there is another one out there just published by the Cleveland Clinic that I think is particularly valuable. They started their video telehealth service about seven years ago, so they have lots of experience, and they describe how they ramped up uh, their video uh, health services, and I think that can be very practical because they've been in the trenches and doing it. I would also point out, though, that telehealth means telephone as well. So these don't have to be fancy video visits. The phone can work just fine, thank you, in many cases. Yeah, and John, you were the chair of family medicine at the Cleveland Clinic, so you know that system well. Um, yeah, I, I looked at both the uh, the BMJ and the, the CDC, and I was struck the BMJ seems very much more primary care physician focused. Yeah 
whereas the CD and it's one page and it's got everything you need on that one really nice infographic. And then the CDC is 11 pages long. I was thinking I'll never make it through that. I feel like the world's worst telemarketer going through that script. But, um, you know, maybe I, I think, like you said, for folks who are, you know, less well-trained, um, perhaps, you know, medical assistants even, or people taking phone calls from patients, it, it can be very helpful. Or programmed into like a computer-assisted interviewing system. There you go. Mm-hmm. Um, that's interesting. So how about, um, John, you've got to finish up, finish us up with some final updates? Yes. Our next study comes from China and has a fancy title to it, Temporal Dynamics and Viral Shedding and Transmissibility of COVID-19, which appeared in Nature Medicine just within the last month. Uh, Very interesting study. Of course, COVID-19 is highly contagious and spread during the pre-symptomatic and early symptom phase, such as occurs with influenza and COVID, could make it difficult to institute effective quarantine procedures. These researchers studied the temporal pattern of viral shedding in 94 COVID-19 positive patients and modeled the viral shedding in another 77 infector-infectee transmission pair. So there are really two studies here. The 94 COVID-19 infected individuals had a total of 414 throat cultures from the symptomatic onset to 32 days after the onset. So lots of cultures to determine uh, the temporal shedding of virus. The greatest viral load shedding was at the time of symptom onset. And the investigators surmised that infectiousness peaks at or slightly before symptom onset. Now, in the the next empirical study of 77 infector-infected pairs, based on epidemiologic modeling and a mean incubation period of 5.2 days, they infer that infectiousness actually starts 2.3 days before symptom onset, with a peak of infectiousness 0.7 days prior to symptom onset. They estimated that in their 77 pairs, 44% of the secondary cases that they studied were infected during the presymptomatic phase of the person who infected them. Therefore, they included that they concluded their substantial presymptomatic transmission. And of course, this presents a, a, a large difficulty in terms of quarantine and infection control. Uh, Henry, what what do you think? Yeah, these data are very similar to what the National Academy. Uh, a rapid review showed just about a week ago. Uh, after looking at several studies, they also suggested that uh, the evidence shows that shedding occurs typically two to three days before the onset of symptoms. It's greatest early on, and it continues for about a week after the resolution of symptoms. Now, they point out there have been some cases of people shedding for 50 days or longer, but these are being evaluated to determine if there was false positives and the like. There have been lots of challenges with antibody testing, as Mark alluded to earlier. Their best guess is that you can detect IgM after about five days of um, onset of symptoms and IgG about 10 to roughly two weeks afterwards. They didn't find any consistent correlation between uh, antibody detection and duration of shedding though and that while there's been some onset uh, some uh, correlation between the the rise of titers and disease severity they didn't necessarily see any correlation between the timing and clinical outcomes so lots of lots of work yet to come great stuff i don't have anything to add this time so i'll let uh, john get on with his final uh, update Okay, this is another of the National Academy papers that came out 
recently, and in this case, they reviewed the efficacy of homemade fabric masks in the prevention of spread of both influenza and COVID-19. Keep in mind, these viruses can be spread by visible and invisible droplets as small as 5 microns and even smaller bioaerosols. What size particle is most dangerous is really not known. The effectiveness of the masks depends upon how the mask is made and how well it's made. Also, leakage around the mask is a problem, so the fit must be as tight as possible. In constructing masks, one must consider both the filtration efficiency and how much the mask impedes breathing in in designing the mask. So that's about wearability. You could have a great block, but if a person can't breathe, they're not going to wear it. (laughs) They'll die of hypoxia. Uh, These researchers found seven studies that evaluated either the ability of the mask to protect the wearer or to prevent spread of infection from the wearer. Performance of the masks range from very poor to reducing exposure to the wearer by about 60%, depending on the material used. Jay Raman found a filtration rate of only about 0.7% of 0.3 micron size particles with four layers of woven handkerchief fabric, 35.3% for five layers of woven brush fabric, and 50% for four layers of polyester knit cut pile fabric. However, a recent study of COVID-19 infected patients found that both surgical and cotton masks were not effective at blocking the virus from disseminating during coughing. But on the other hand, two other studies of cotton mask wares did suggest moderate protection against inhalation of infectious-sized particles. There's only been one randomized trial of masks. It was done in healthcare workers in which they compared two-layer cotton masks with medical masks, which were well-constructed, and the cotton masks were far inferior to the surgical masks with a relative risk of 13 for protecting from respiratory infections. They actually measured infection rates over the course of two months. Uh, So the bottom line is the the N95s are by far the best. Surgical masks uh, appear considerably better than any homemade masks. But if you have a really well-constructed homemade mask, it can block probably up to 60% of particles and provide uh, moderate protection from COVID infection. Yeah, a lot, lots left to learn here and a lot of uncertainty in this area. Henry? Well, I just, for some reason, the image of holding an umbrella while standing in front of a fire, firing squad comes to mind. <laughs> <laughs> Henry, Henry. <laughs> well, so I mean, skeptical. Know, it's yeah, it's got to be one of those umbrellas that you had in the Kingsman movie, right? <laughs> <laughs> that one would help. <laughs> John, if you haven't seen that movie, you need to go see that. Okay. Um, I have one more comment, though. There, there was a, a recent unpublished study done at Wake Forest Institute for Regenerative Medicine, and they tust, tested a wide variety of materials in the lab. And they found that the best homemade masks were actually of two layers of high-quality, heavyweight quilters cotton. The thread count has to be at least 180 or more, and also fabrics such as batiks, which have a very heavy weave. And those masks and their lab testing filtered out 60% of infectious-sized particles. So, so uh, Henry, don't be quite so skeptical. 
<laughs> All right. Well, we're going to wrap up with, uh, it's my turn to give some recommendations, a, a little bit different, a couple of short ones here. So I think a lot of us are missing the chance to travel and mourning it for the coming year. At least I'm going to suggest you go to travelandleisure.com and search for virtual train rides. They've got 13 videos, high def videos of these incredible train rides throughout the world. My favorites that I've seen so far are the Berner Oberland in Switzerland and the Flam Railway in Norway. They're just beautiful. So travelandleisure.com, search virtual train rides. I'm also rereading at the recommendation of a college friend, The Day the Universe Changed by James Burke, about seven paradigm-busting times in human history. It's a great read. It's kind of uh, you know a, a very readable history, kind of a refresher on Western Civ class. Uh, last night I came across this quote from French philosopher Pierre Abelard, and it seems relevant to our podcast and our work. He said, use systematic doubt and question everything. Learn the difference between statements of rational proof and those merely of persuasion. Be precise in use of words and expect precision from others. And finally, watch for error, even in Holy Scripture. And if you su substitute medical journals for Holy Scripture, I think it's a perfect fit. Anyway, it's The Day the Universe Changed. It's a book from 1985. Uh, and this is one where it's worth getting the actual book because it's so nicely illustrated. And that's really a big part of the the, the read is the, the illustrations and maps and the like. Uh, and it's also a really entertaining BBC docuseries you can uh, probably find. I, I know you can find it on Amazon, maybe elsewhere. In any case, um, hope you all enjoyed today's discussion. Thanks, guys. Please tell your friends. We'll talk to you soon. In fact, next week with more primary care updates.